Just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and in no way represent the state of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Historical Society, or the Oklahoma State Historic Preservation Office. Welcome to the Musings of an ADD Mind podcast. This is your host, Jack, and I have the ADD Mind. Joining me today is Dr. Matthew Pierce. He is here to talk about the National Register of Historic Places. If you listened last week, you know that we had the Oklahoma Deputy Shippo on, Linda Ozan. She talked about historic preservation in general, sort of all that that encompasses. And Matthew is the State of Oklahoma National Register Coordinator, and he is going to discuss the National Register, why it's important, who can get something listed in that whole process. And Matthew, could you, uh, A, tell us a little bit about yourself, your work experience, where you got your, uh, your doctorate from, and all of that fun stuff? Yeah, sure thing. So I, I grew up in Colorado. I'm not an Okie by birth. I grew up in Colorado, uh, did my undergraduate work at a small school in Alamosa, Colorado, called Adams State College, uh, now Adams State University. Um, I went into history to be a teacher. I, that's what I thought I was going to do. Um, Adams State was, was well known for in Colorado as a teaching college. So that's where I went and was working on a, on a history degree for secondary education, uh, basketball was doing, was looking at doing all those things and just really got to know one of the benefits of going to a small school like that was you got to know your professors really well. And you kind of got a glimpse of what life was like for them as, as a professor, as, as a historian, like what it meant to do research and, and that type of thing. And so they encouraged me to go to graduate school. Um, I applied for the University of Oklahoma down in Norman, and I arrived there in 2007 and went on to complete my master's and my PhD in history. Still on the same track, I was planning on, okay, I'm going to be a professor instead of a secondary ed teacher. And while in graduate school, the 2008 financial crisis happened. Um, academic, the number of academic jobs plummeted while the number of graduate students getting degrees still increased. And so there was just, by the time I graduated, I received my, my PhD in 2014. By that time, the number of, of tenure track academic jobs was, was minuscule. Was minuscule. And mm-hmm. so it was okay. highly competitive. And really like the, the best I was getting was, you know, one year positions here or one year positions there. And during that same time, life had happened, met my wife who works in public health at the University of Oklahoma. Public health and science professions pay astronomically more than the humanities, and you know, I've with that, that in mind, yeah, exactly. So, um, so with that in mind, I decided I needed to be kind of I needed to get creative and and look at other ways that I could apply uh, my degree, apply my my expertise. And so, you know, while I was still, you know, I taught at the University of Oklahoma for a couple of years on on a series of kind of one year recurring contracts taught the big U.S. history survey classes and, and that type of thing, and then also started to branch out, and I was doing uh, work for an online um, education company, 
uh, developing U.S. history curricula for them. And then, then that turned into, you know, they were basically asking me, well, hey, you, you know how to write. You know how to, we like how you write. We like how you, you know, created your curricula and how you created your assessment items and that sort of thing. How would you like to review what other people have done for other courses for us? And so I started doing quality assurance review for a variety of college level courses and you know, for, you know, kind of intro level college courses, like your intro to not only like your basic U.S. history courses, but like introduction to biology, introduction to statistics, those types of things. And so it okay. just kind of got me out of my, out of my specialization and kind of got me to, to, you know, working with, working with other disciplines, working in a different environment. And, and then from there, I was doing that, doing really well with that. And in the fall of 2018, I got word of a small architecture firm in Oklahoma City, Preservation and Design Studio, ran by uh, Catherine Montgomery, and that they needed a historian to revise a, a handful of nominations. And so met with them. You know, I had been interested in historic preservation for a while. Um, my expertise is in environmental history, uh, and a key aspect of that is is the his, you know, history of, of land use and land developments, and then of course, and that translates into the built environment and architecture. So I wasn't, I'm not trained as an architectural historian, but was certainly aware of the built environment and how buildings and structures um, shape our understanding of place and the nomination process, you know, preparing nominations is essentially, you know, preparing history reports for lack of a better right. term. And so I fell right into, into that type of work. And you're basically trying to prove why this place is significant. And there's different criteria that, that you can make that argument for, as we'll probably talk about later on. Yeah. And so I just really fell into that work. And, um, and then from there, the studio kept me on and they just found me, you know, more and more work to do. And I kind of created the, the, you know, kind of created the, the historian position for them and where I could do, I was doing national register nominations and, and several of those were, were translating into historic preservation tax credit project. And so with getting experience managing tax credit projects and just getting the whole realm of preservation. And then I've been at the State Historic Preservation Office since uh, September of, of last year. So um, it was kind of a windy road to get to where <laughs> I am, but it definitely, definitely helped prepare me for where I am. Right. And you had a great sort of guru in Catherine Montgomery. Um, she was definitely uh, well-versed in the entire process. And she pretty much had done every aspect of historic preservation as well before she started her own firm. And uh, she's definitely a force that's going to be missed in the state of Oklahoma. Yeah, that was a case where um, I had got, I, I think I had heard through a colleague of mine that they're saying, hey, we, we got word of this studio that needs, needs a historian. Mm -hmm. And um, I just, I may have even just Googled her. And, and was like, you know, and seen, you know, work by that point, you know, they had done work in the Ambassador Hotel. They had done all their stuff in mid, in Midtown and Automobile Alley. And I'm just like, okay, this is someone I need, need to know. And so, yeah, it was just for someone who could, she was definitely someone who, I mean, she's a, she was an architect, but she was also a historian. She loved history and yeah. was really, you know, helped me kind of see, how you could combine the two 
uh, and even just I got to where I really enjoyed working with architects. They are they're not engineers, and um, <laughs> you know they are they are they think of themselves. Many think of themselves as uh, these ones that I've had experience with that they are they're artists. They appreciate it's it is kind of a unique place where like there's room for the humanities in architecture. Right. Because, I mean, they're essentially designing spaces for humans to inhabit. Yeah. There's definitely, I would say, I don't know, a massive chunks of all of the buildings in sort of Midtown and the surrounding area, you know, downtown Oklahoma City. Catherine had a hand in Automobile Alley. If you don't live in Oklahoma, there are just sort of these little districts around the downtown area. And it had all of these buildings that... I don't know, 25 years ago, we're all kind of crap, and they are not crap anymore. Our downtown and surrounding areas had really a major renaissance, and Catherine was a very, very large part of that. So she's she's definitely going to be missed. <laughs> so uh, just FYI, Catherine just recently, uh, just recently passed away, and it's tough for the preservation community in Oklahoma. She's up. That'll be hard to replace. So anyway, uh, I don't want to get this all sad, so I'm going to move on now so that, uh, well, it's not sad. Um, so in depth, kind of what it is, and I'm going to start with sort of simple questions here just to get like this foundation of where we're going to go. So the, the first question is simply, um, who can nominate properties to the National Register? Well, pretty much anybody can prepare a nomination. Um, the State Historic Preservation Office uh, is really the only body uh, that can formally nominate properties for the National Register. And there are also cases where if, if, on a, if a tribal nation has assumed those responsibilities, then it's the tribal nation can nominate or if it's federally owned property the federal government can can nominate um but basically anyone can prepare a nomination for our office to review and and that's where um so we will get nominations or inquiries about you know whether you know they think maybe something's eligible um we will get nominations prepared by from folks from all walks of life from the professional consultants um, who are doing this as maybe part of a tax credit project or for you know you know they're helping the property owner pursue some sort of funding to um, you know uh, the mom and pop type of operation or you know or a, a property owner who it's it's been a labor of love and they've they've been working on it for years it's it really runs the gamut in terms of of the the expert the wealth of expertise that we that we deal with and that's one thing that i enjoy is that i'm not i'm not dealing with for the most part i'm not dealing with other phds you know it's i'm, I'm dealing with ordinary people who care about history who care about these places uh and want to see them documented see them recognized once sort of things have been nominated and all of that, how do property owners or the general public, how do they get notified about proposed National Register nominations? So the whole nomination process is governed by 
a set of regulations. It's governed by federal law, essentially. Um, you know, the, specifically, everything has been set up under the National Historic Preservation Act. And so, um, so there is a set, you know, we, we do adhere to those, those regulations and specifically, uh, you know, first and foremost, the, the property owner is notified. Um, I will say that, you know, a nomination does not have to be prepared by property owners, right? You can have, if it's say, for instance, it's a property that's being threatened with demolition, um, or there's a prop, you know, or, or something like that. Con uh, you know, a group of concerned citizens can certainly prepare the nomination. Um, but we, especially in the state of Oklahoma, we we try to make sure that we have the property owner's consent in 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 that. And that's we we make sure we notify the property owners early on. That's especially the case with um, our historic districts or those uh, properties that include multiple number of resources. So you might have multiple owners. We don't necessarily need the support of all the property owners in a district, but we we are required to have a majority of of property owners within a district support that nomination, and so and that's all. It's just part of the process where we we we, we formally normal uh, we formally notify property owners. Um, we notify elected officials that includes the mayor, the county commissioners, your state and, and federal representatives, right? All within due process, all within the process of, of nominating uh, a property. And so, and then the process can take really as, as much time as it needs to, needs to take. Are basically, so if, if I receive uh, a nomination uh, from somebody, you know, I review it. Typically, that nomination goes through a couple of drafts before I feel like it's ready to go to the next step. I'm very much kind of like a gatekeeper um, in the process. Right. Correct. And and once once I feel like a nomination is is ready to go, in some cases it might need to be heard by our local governments, um, city of Oklahoma City, city of Tulsa, for instance. Um, you know, the nomination will be will be heard by them, and when it goes through that step. Property owners are notified. There's public notice of the meetings. It's a public meeting that's held for people to attend. Um, you know, once it's gone through that step, it will go through every every. All of our nominations are reviewed by a state committee. Um, that body meets every um, meets quarterly, and same thing. Um, we notify property owners, elected officials, at least 30 days in advance. The meeting is public, um, especially in the, the the beauty of Zoom and all the virtual platforms now is, you know, folks can 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 virtually attend these meetings now, which is actually kind of really nice because yeah, we nominate properties throughout the state. Some of our consultants are from out of state, so they can they can sign in and, and provide comments or anything like that. And then, you know, same thing. Once once the state committee has reviewed it, um, I make any final edits or corrections that need to be made. And then it gets sent up to the park service and the whole process starts over again, right? Where people are notified. Um, and then it ultimately, so it's a very, it's a, it's a bureaucratic process. It's governed by federal regulations. Uh, and then one of my jobs is just to make sure that that process is as clear as it can be to, to everyone involved and that they know what steps are, uh, are being taken. Yes. Yeah. Um, Having been the guy that has sent some of those <laughs> mailings out to people, I know that it can, uh, sometimes there can be a lot of people just for one property that 
or, you know, especially if it's a district. Oh, my gosh, that is a lot of work. Mm -hmm. But um, that sort of ties into the, the next two questions. I'll sort of combine them uh, that I had. And that is, A, how can property owners express their support for the National Register nomination? And then, of course, the opposite. Some owners don't want their house or property to be listed. Yeah. Um, how can somebody object if they're on the I don't want it listed side of the coin? All through that same process. And so as, as you know, when notifications are received, so if, if, it is, if it's a property owner that, and we get, you know, as, as you know, we get these letters too, Yes. where, you know, when we've sent the notification to property owners saying, you know, hey, you're, you're nominate, you know, the nomination that will, that is proposing to list your property on the national register will be heard at, at this meeting, at this date, at this time, you know, and then it, you know, typically, you know, folks can, we, and we get it both ways. We'll have then um, the owners will send a letter indicating their support for the nomination they or they will attend the meeting and and that is a case where um you know i help oversee those meetings and so like when those nominations are being considered i will mention oh by the way the property owner is here so if you have any questions or you know you know i'll make sure that they have the chance to speak and and vice versa if um if a property owner is um does not is not supportive of a nomination um one thing i will say at this point is a national register nomination just because your property is being listed in the national register it doesn't per, it doesn't provide some sort of undue burden on property ownership it doesn't doesn't affect how a person can can use their property um that is a, a misunderstanding is that you know some you know we like to think oh if it's been listed that saves it from demolition that's not the case um it provides limited protection but um and that's typically where we see opposition once we kind of clear that hurdle and we say hey this doesn't necessarily impact how you use your property we typically don't have um it's rare for us to have outright opposition to uh property being listed by the owner right um but if that's the case we process it according to our regulations. They they can file their um, they can file their opposition that is made known. Our review committee will still consider the nomination, and we will still we can still per our regulations we can still process the nomination over the owner's objection. Um, off, or oftentimes, what we'll do is we'll indicate that if if the owner is, is objects to the nomination the nomination can can stay there um it, it, it will not we won't move it forward to the national park service correct what i will say is like if it's if the property is owned by a municipality let's say it's a city hall that the community wants to see listed in the national register and the city opposes it we will process the nomination accordingly and we will send it on to the park service uh, and the park service can list um, municipally or publicly owned properties you know despite the owner's objection so like if, if you know if the city opposes their city hall being listed the park service can move forward with listing it anyways okay okay i know a lot of people have this when they think something's listed, that the state and the feds come down with, you can do this, you can do this, can't, you know. Um, most of the time, it's like the city, the first of all, that does that, the city that you live in uh, through their historic uh, commissions that they have. 
And so a lot, most of the time, unless your house is in a, you know, like a listed district or something like that, most of the time, if you want to paint your house Pepto-Bismol pink, no one will stop you. You can paint it Pepto-Bismol pink. Now, we might tell you that that's a hideous color for a house, <laughs> but we can't stop you from doing it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. And yeah, and I will say that's that's kind of one of the challenges that that our office has is kind of there's a lot of misunderstandings about just historic preservation in general. Right. That there's this sense that, you know, preservation, you know, even that word kind of implies, okay, well, we must be preserving something that which means we're anti-development or or those types of things, which we're not. It's we're very much kind of maybe we're guiding development to be better in some ways because we're acknowledging the presence of some of these, these culturally significant resources. And um, yeah, most of the, it's, you know, those, those types of restrictions are, are local, right? They're, they can't come from the state level in terms of, Hey, yeah, you can't paint your house or your windows have to be a certain way. Um, those are, those are coming from, from your local governments um, and I will, I will often get those types of calls and I, you know, I simply just relay them on to the proper, the proper contacts. We certainly advise cities and how to craft their design guidelines and, and best practices. And we hold trainings and that type of type of thing, but we can't oversee the, the, the day to day right. um, of each city. Yeah. Um, definitely in terms of like new development or whatever, you know, we don't want to say you can't do it. We want to say, how can you include the significant property yeah. into this new development and kind of a as using oklahoma city as an example automobile alley had all of these you know they were the car dealerships from the 1920s and they were just sort of sitting there run down and rather than tear that down they were all you know brought up to code modern but they're all these just great looking buildings that are now part of this great development and they make the city a lot of uh, money and tax revenue now because people put the work in to save the building. And it's just not this, you know, modern glass structure that <laughs> looks like yep. every other modern mid-rise mm -hmm. uh, building in every other city. So that's definitely something that we want. So, And sort of while we're on the subject, before I go on, the best time... It's like planting a tree. The best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is today. With with significant buildings, the best time to be a preservationist about it is 20 years ago, not when you read in the paper that someone wants to tear it down. Because by then, it's probably too late. <laughs> you really, you really want to get on that ball four or five years ago. If there's a building that's older and you love it and you think it's significant, as you've now discovered, you can start the process of getting that listed and getting people interested in saving it before it even, before people even know they want to tear it down. Yeah, each state has a state historic preservation office. That that that's one reason why I took this job is you know I am one of many you know of, you know essentially one of fifty national register coordinators. Now each program is structured slightly different, but you know, so you can you can reach out to your respective shippo, as we like to call ourselves, and um, and start that process. And um, yeah, we prefer not having to do these types of things at the last hour. You know, when the wrecking ball is near, it does happen. But 
it's and that's why we have you know within our program we we sponsor architectural surveys we do you know we review federal projects for potential effects on historic properties so we do have mechanisms in place to you know identify historic properties uh, and evaluate them for significance but a key part of a, a key part of it is people who care local people in their communities who care about these resources and that's that's what matters so yes 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 for sure and sort of now i guess that we talked about you know the significance can things get turned down you know objections all of that stuff um why don't you go ahead and tell us uh what the benefits are of owning a property that is on the national register because there has to be you know benefits obviously <laughs> yes yeah um the the main benefit is recognition um the awareness uh and recognition that comes with a national register listing you know it's it's basically notification that this place matters and this place matters for reasons a b and c um and so you know like when we when we get our notifications from the park service saying hey these the following properties in this state are being listed you know we send out a press release um, that's always a busy time for me that I've discovered is once I send out those press releases, then within the next week, I have news organizations and newspapers saying, hey, can you talk to us about about these buildings? And so it gives, you know, gives the property owner, uh, you know, some recognition, gives the property, you know, some recon some recognition for its significance. You know, another uh, another key benefit is it does provide limited protection. It doesn't, you know, like we, as I mentioned earlier, a just because a property is listed in the National Register, it doesn't prevent it from being demolished or altered beyond recognition. But it does provide limited protection um, in terms of federal projects. So, you know, our office is obligated to review all federally funded, licensed, or permitted projects for their potential effects on historic properties i.e. properties listed in the National Register. So that is a big part of our job is, you know, when we see um, projects come across our desks, new highways, bridges, cell towers, we evaluate those projects for their effect, their potential effects on historic properties. If we identify that there will be historic properties affected, we go into mitigation and, and try to figure out the best ways to, to mitigate the, the impact on those properties uh, but that just applies for for federal projects some states have stronger some states have laws in place also that provide more protection um or even some municipalities do as well for for list properties that are listed and then they're within their jurisdictions um, another benefit is uh tax credits um, if it's a commercially if it's a property that is going to be used for commercial prop purposes property owners can um, apply for uh, tax credits to rehabilitate those properties. Um, there's a 20% tax credit from the federal government. Uh, and then various states um, have ha often have state tax credits as well that, that attach to that. For Oklahoma, it's another 20%. So in the state of Oklahoma, if you're applying for a tax credit project, you know, that's 40% um, credit off of your redevelopment costs, you know, the new right, yeah, plumbing, new HVAC. Um, and all of which is, you know, in many cases with some of with some projects, the rehabilitation wouldn't be financially feasible without those credits um, being applied, right? Because 
because yeah, new new plumbing, new HVAC, repaired windows, those things they cost money. And lastly, I you know with a property being listed, um, money doesn't automatically come from the heavens, but there are opportunities for funding for listed properties when that when those funds are available um, for you know rehabilitate for re, for repairs. Um, for programming, those types of things. there um, The National Park Service has several grants that are available. The National Trust for Historic Preservation has several grants that are available. And oftentimes, the one of the requirements for a property to be, to be eligible for those grants is that it has to be listed in the National Register. Correct. So those are mainly the four, the four key benefits. Yeah. And talking about the sort of the, the tax credit side of that, uh, as I discussed with Linda, the first National Bank Center building here downtown, that was a, a massive, massive, massive project. The largest project in the state of Oklahoma ever. Mm-hmm. And had there not been tax incentives, I don't know if Gary Brooks would have been able to do what he did. No, no. And, and Or maybe he still could have done what he did, but the building would be unrecognizable as historic. Um, the, the, the key thing about those incentives is that yes, that is 40% off of your redevelopment costs, but you know, the historic character needs to be maintained to the best extent possible. So, you know, like in first nationals case, so you can, you can still go into, even though it's been converted into, you know, apartments, hotel, you can still go into, you can walk in the door and you can tell it's a historic bank still has the murals, still, the, 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 the teller window, the, you know, the teller desks, those types of things are still there. And that's often the, the key difference between a, a certified rehabilitation and everything else that's just kind of adaptive reuse. Right, right. Um, you know, I was, in a, I was in a building the other day that was historically, it was, a, it was an auto dealer, dealership, but there was an adaptive reuse project. You, if you didn't know that it was originally a car dealership, you wouldn't you wouldn't know it. Right. The windows had all been replaced. The exterior's been the exterior's brand new. They put new tile in. Um, there were some little features there that you could notice that maybe they were there originally. Um, but but yeah. So that's the the it is like you know some people bristle when they think oh tax incentives, um, but the the tax credit program for historic preservation has been wildly successful in Oklahoma and in other states in terms of re, you know, revitalizing historic buildings while still preserving their historic character. Yeah. First National may look better now than when it opened in 1930. Yeah. <laughs> and, and when he talks about like the bank teller sort of station is there, they kept the old bank vault in the basement with that gigantic million pound door Yep, and it's a restaurant inside of there. But that bank vault door is there. Yep. It, it, Gary Brooks has an Instagram. Uh, follow it. I I need to. And you can see uh, the pictures of what we talk about. Yeah. Um. You know, for my for my listening friends. <laughs> I'm very jealous that we did not get that project when I was in the when I was at the studio. But also, but also seeing how big that was, I'm like, oh, I'm like, yeah, I don't know if we could have done that, especially like me being relatively new, I'm like, oh, there's no way I could have taken something on that, that big. Yeah. Yeah. That was just, yeah. It's uh anyway, we're going to move on now. Cause we'll, 
this isn't the Gary Brooks vs. National podcast. It's the National Register podcast. <laughs> um, so sort of tying into everything we've talked about, and that is basically with no guarantee of funding or protection or grants, why is it important to list properties? Obviously, I know, you know, that significance of what we talked on i just sort of wanted you to key in on that if you could just briefly touch on that real quick oh that is that is the age-old question of why even when i was teaching and having to get students to care about history right it's like why why does why does history matter um and and it matters because it tells us who we are where we've been and where we're going and the national register um, as a catalog of the buildings, structures, sites, objects, districts, they provide a tangible collection of who we are and where we've been in terms of the built environment. Right. Um, that th those are the places where we can, you can basically touch. Right. You can be in those spaces, in those places. Now, I mean, for the most part, you know, historic, you know, just because your your how your home is listed, you don't have to open the 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 house to your to the public. Right, right. <laughs> you know, like you know, that's always something like. But like, if but if you're in a uh, you know, but if you're in a residential um, neighborhood that's been listed as a district, you can you can you know be in that district and you can can you can get that that sense and that association with with the the period in which it was constructed. You know, if you're you know, yeah, if you're in a, if you're in a building, you can, you just get that, that sense of, of, of where we are and, and where we've, and where we've been. And it's, and it's a remarkably diverse collection of, uh, you know, of, of course, in this age, we are striving to be for the National Register to be to to be even more inclusive and recognize and, and recognize properties that we may not have, of have, may not have evaluated you know, 10 or 20 years ago, but even just within like a, uh, the state of Oklahoma, we have, every, you know, we have everything from archeological sites, um, you know, sac you know, sacred tribal, um, you know, sacred sites that are recognized by the tribal nations and dog truck cabins that date to the 1850s to, um, you know, the, there's a sod house, correct? We have a sod house. Yeah, we have a sod house. Um, and and like, you know, various branch houses and other things that date to the settlement period. We have, you know, county courthouses that date to the the teens and twenties as, you know, as various towns across the state were kind of maturing and coming into their own. And to where now we've got um, you know, in terms of our in terms of architecture, uh, a lot of our you know, mid-century, mid-20th century um, designed uh, modern movement style architecture is now being recognized and now becoming eligible for consideration. Um, and so it really, it it literally runs the gamut from prehistory to to the present day uh, in terms of in terms of what can be listed. And and so it's always something, you know, how I always kind of describe my my job to people is, you know, you know, typically, you know, you can walk into a building and oftentimes they'll have the plaque that says, hey, this, you know, this building has been listed in the National Register of Historic Places. And oftentimes when you see that plaque, it, 
it gives you pause because you're you're kind of you're you're meant to kind of then think and contemplate about where you are right and that's why i tell people I'm like that's 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 what i do i help those types of places get that recognition so that they can help convey you know this sense of place and this sense of history to um to the community so that's in a nutshell that's why i think the the program matters yeah so i get this i don't know maybe this makes me sound like a nerd i don't know but when you walk in the oklahoma state capitol at each corner there's a stairway and the stairs are all made of marble but they're worn down from a hundred years of people walking up and down those stairs and it gives me a connection to the fact that say governor alfalfa bill murray was it was the 20s that he was the governor i believe late 20s early 30s something like that he was a uh he wore a colonel sanders suit uh to put it mildly frequently he was a very unique individual who once met the uh bunch of Texans at a Red River bridge with the National Guard and told them Oklahoma starts on this side of the Red River. <laughs> and um, so he was this unique guy. But when I walk up and down those stairs, he's part of the reason those divots are there because he walked up and down those stairs too. And, you know, other governors and just other things that happen, that's a connection to the state capitol. And that's just, you know, one sort of building. And to go off on a tangent here, one of the things that ticks me off about the NFL is every 20 years, they need a new stadium. Well, we can't do this. We can't fix it. But at the college level, 98% of them are using stadiums that were first, the first parts of them came about in the 19-teens. And they're able to modernize these stadiums and put ADA in, make them modern, but they're still the classic thing. You know, OU has... University of Oklahoma, greatest football team ever. They have been playing in the same stadium since it was Owen Field in the 1920s. But the Jacksonville Jaguars that have only been a team in the NFL since the late 90s, their stadium is already a piece of crap and needs to be replaced. And that just irritates me. It's irritated me for years, and I just had to get that off my chest since we're talking about historic properties on the National Register. So, so you you just inspired me. <laughs> and if Linda Ozan is listening to this, um, you know, she gives us like two hours a week to for us to do whatever we want in terms of right research or whatever that. And on my to do list, especially because it's opening day for baseball coming up, I need to research baseball stadiums because i believe fenway park is listed mm -hmm. in the national register i believe wrigley is listed that would not surprise me i would have to double check um what about soldier field i i would have to look and see i'd have to check with the illinois database and see um because you also bring the point that you know like you, you bring up like ou stadium yes it's still oh and feel but they've done so much in terms of expanding the seating capacity and that type of thing the original fabric of that there's really not anything left of the original fabric besides maybe the field itself oh not even that because it was not even that it was astroturf back in the 70s and 80s and so they put the sod back in because that's right because now they do the yeah it's right so um you know so that's something to that that is inspiring me to take a look at because i um i'm a colorado rockies fan i love Coors Field. it's a beautiful ballpark and i was stunned i think i heard last year like now it's like the third oldest 
ballpark in the National League, and it was built in the mid '90s. Yeah, I'm like, I like that just stuns me. And if they ever like, if they ever demolish that, um, I will just be livid because it was, you know, it's like that park. I mean, Camden Yards in Baltimore. If it's not listed, it should be because it was. It started that whole movement of bringing your ballparks back downtown and designing them in, in your downtown areas and, and how it kind of revitalized that, that area of Baltimore. That inspired me to, this has inspired me to look into national register listings for, um, for ballparks. And I actually think in Oklahoma, a couple of years ago, I, we were looking at a ballpark in Elk City okay. that was potentially potentially eligible for the national register was built by the WPA in the thirties. That definitely helps. Mm-hmm. And I think preservation Oklahoma had reached out to them to say, Hey, are you interested in getting this listed? And I don't think they were um, necessarily supportive of it. So we haven't really pursued anything with it, but that's one that comes to mind. But I think, and there's a couple of uh, um, ballparks that are associated with the Negro leagues uh, throughout the nation that are listed in the national register. So the national register applies to all walks of life. Yeah, yeah. And I understand that most of the college football stadiums have been renovated to the point to where they're not the original thing anymore. But it's just the idea that this is where the history has taken place all of these years. In in the NFL, they just don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. And and that goes and and that goes back to like how with preservation getting the bad rap of over oh, just a de- we're against we're against demolition or we're against, we're anti everything. It's not, we, we want development to be better. Um, we want the market to work better. Why, why is new always have to be better? Um, and we're seeing time and time again, new isn't sustainable. Uh, we can't keep building our way out of the, out of the crises that we're facing. Um, and so preservation is, is a planning tool to say, well, how can we still design places that people can connect with and are sustainable and are good places to be. Right. Sort of like take the Metrodome in uh, Minnesota. Yeah. There were uh, presidential conventions in that building. Yep. And what is it now? A parking lot. (laughs) Oklahoma, you know, Oklahoma city is going to be facing this with the convention center, the old convention center downtown. Yep. There, they will be facing that issue here sooner rather than later. Um, I know now they have it converted like into a film studio. Yeah. But yeah, I remember, I think I was at a, some type of city meeting where they were starting to talk about the type of stuff. And, you know, people are mentioning like, hey, I saw Kiss there. You know, I saw, you know, I've seen, you know, the Blazers hockey team play there. I, you know, I, you know, I was there for this convention or that type of thing. It's like, yeah, it's not the most aesthetically pleasing building in the world. Um, but then, you know, it was also certainly tied to Oklahoma City's urban renewal period. So it's significant for that. Um, you know, that's something to, you know, that they will have to think about is, you know, do we, you know, it, by, by tearing it down, do they, are they just simply repeating the model of, you know, okay, we have this great new convention center, but in 30, 40 years, are we just going to be doing the same thing with it? So that's something that they need to think about. I hope with that building, well, first of all, I hope that the movie studio that's there last a long time because that's great for the oklahoma economy but in oklahoma they have the tendency to we bought this we're going to tear it down we're going to build a new skyscraper and then as soon as the building gets torn down the economy crashes and then the skyscraper doesn't get built <laughs> or, it st- or 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 still gets built and the and the and the 
economy still crashes. Right. And they just can't replace the windows when the windows are broken. Right, right. It, you know, there's a certain certain tower I think we were thinking of that we may not name publicly. Yes. Yeah, no, they they can definitely afford a lot more lawyers than I can. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So <laughs> I guess moving on here, um, are there any types of properties or houses or structures that just automatically aren't eligible for the National Register? And not because they're not old enough, but just for whatever reason, you know, there's only the toilets, the original thing in the building, that's why, or whatever. So we, we, we basically evaluate properties um, with two criteria in mind. And one is uh, significance, you know, is, is the property, is the property historically significant? Uh, is it significant because of its association with uh, a certain event? Um, is it significant for its association with an important person? Um, is it significant for its design? Um, is it significant for its potential to yield um, historical information that we don't otherwise have? Um, so that's the first thing we always ask ourselves is, well, you know, regardless of, of age or condition is, is the property significant? Um, and is it significant at a local level, statewide level, um, or a national level? If we have, you know, if, if, if it's not significant, then we can stop there. Um, or if it is, if, if, if we think it might be significant, then another thing that comes into play is, this, is the second criteria, which is integrity. Does the property have sufficient integrity to convey that significance? And there's seven basic, basic aspects of, of integrity. And now that, of course, I'm on the spot, I may not remember them all, but I mean, we look at you know, things like location. You know, is the property in its original location or has it been moved? Um, you know, for instance, if it was a historically, if it was the railroad depot, um, that's certainly significant for a lot of communities in Oklahoma and throughout the nation. Um, but if you take, if you pick up that railroad depot and you moved it into the middle of the city park, can it still really convey its significance as a railroad depot? Not really. So, you know, that's a, that's a key thing. We look at the setting, you know, has the setting changed? Has it, does it inhibit the property's ability to convey its significance? Um, we look at things such as materials, design, and workmanship, uh, because those are three aspects that really put a building or a, a structure in context. You know, that tells us what types of materials were available at the time. Um, you know, maybe it's a, maybe the, the workmanship, maybe the building conveys, you know, a distinct, you know, the, the distinct craftsmanship of a particular trade, if we're looking at like a stone building or something like that. And then, you know, those types of, those, those areas can, can help convey the, the, the a property's feeling and association with its historic significance. Um, so we have to look at those two things. It's, it's, it's significance and integrity. And a property can have significance, but it might lack integrity. And it doesn't, we don't necessarily need to have all those aspects of integrity in place, but there is a threshold. If, there, if, 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 if it's been altered beyond recognition, um, if it's in ruins, if, it's a, if it was a building and it was prominent for its architectural design, but now that building is in ruins or the roof is gone and, and half the building's missing, we really can't 
we really can't let it's not eligible um and 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 similarly a property can have high integrity but it it may not be able to convey significance um and that happens a lot say like with a lot of um of residential properties um especially as we get into our you know our mid to late 20th century residential property types you know a lot of those properties are are well built um, but they're also one of many. Yeah, one of 18 versions of the same thing. Exactly. And so individually, maybe we're not, you know, individually, it may not, it, it might still have high integrity, but it, it's not able to convey um, any any type of, of significance. Um, so then in that case, maybe if it's a residential property, we need to look broader. I mean, we need to look at the entire neighborhood, perhaps. Um, but those are the two things we look at is, is significance and integrity and i will say kind of as we started earlier talking about you know the, the regulations that are in place to notify property owners and that type of thing the national park service has bulletins and and guides that help people like me evaluate these properties for their integrity and their significance it's not like i am it's not like i'm just doing these evaluations on the fly um i have you know bulletins and guides that you know I have to be able to justify my decisions and you know i have to fall back to to those the, to those technical guides in order to do that so we're not just making this all up as we go along you know there are cases where we we are continually we're continually revising those and, and adapting them to to meet you know new property types or or to account for um new categories of significance that we may have overlooked previously but you know, those are, it always comes back to, you know, is the property significant? Does it have integrity? Right, right. Uh, going back real quick on when you were talking about uh, railroad sort of stations. If you live on the East Coast and sort of the uh, northern part of the, you know, the upper Midwest and everything, your states, people were in before railroads. West of that, and the railroads came in a lot of towns a lot of you know small towns or whatever almost came about a lot of times because there was a train station there or a train depot and so that's why in a lot of these towns that is significant because it was one of the first structures built in that town sometimes that was not like a you know something that would fall over in a month or two or a tent and so that's yeah yeah, we have in in Oklahoma, we have multiple towns where the depot is the only thing that's listed or eligible to be listed. And so that it's they are, yeah, they are profoundly significant because they dictated whether a town lived or died. Um, because we also have numerous examples of old town sites that are no longer extant because the railroad did not go through them. So, um, yeah, they're incredibly important. And then that strangely repeated itself with the interstate system. Yep. Um, anyway, that's a simple aside. That's about all I know with trains, other than if you get hit by one, you lose every time. The only thing that can stop a train from a train is another train. And even that's not pretty. <laughs> so anyway, moving on from trains. Um, We've discussed sort of historic districts. Could you maybe go in a little bit, just sort of, you know, is there a minimum size for a district? 
are there different types of historic districts you know like residential business that type of thing or you know just real quick yeah um districts are basically any collection of of buildings structures um sites or objects that share a common theme um that that's the simple definition um and that theme could be residential could be commercial could be agricultural could be um a landscape like a like a park for instance that has you know you might have a you know a greenhouse and you might have a pavilion and all those types of things and all those could be lumped, lumped together into a district um districts are the way that we list properties that um that that's essentially how those property types can convey their significance you know we we talked about a residential you know a, you know a single house earlier you know an individual house uh more often than not is not able to convey um significance but when you're looking at an entire neighborhood and maybe that neighborhood was planned to be designed in a certain way and the houses were designed to be in specific styles uh and so so on and so forth or same thing with the business district uh in your downtown areas where you know the streets are designed in a certain way and the buildings were were designed in 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 certain ways to convey specific functions. You know, those are all the types of things that we look at that we're looking at into, um, you know, potential district nominations or, you know, agricultural areas where you have the farmhouse and the barn and sheds and a cellar. All those types of things collect. You know, individually, none of those tell the whole story. You need all of them to tell the full story. And so that's essentially why we have districts. Is you know, the, that's our way to. Um, to kind of combine, you know, multiple resources into a single nomination to tell um, those specific stories. And so, yeah, we typically, you know, we have residential historic districts, um, commercial historic districts. Those are our most, those are probably the two most common that we have in Oklahoma. And then size, uh, it can be anywhere from a handful of, of resources to hundreds. It just depends on, again, depends on the depends on the types of properties that you're working with and the story the story that they tell yeah my uh, my aunt and uncle in uh, live in Terre Haute Indiana and their house is in a, a listed historic district um, which they were saying was nifty until I told them that uh, well your house is a non-contributing part of the historic district <laughs> and they kind of looked at me and I was like well you see you've replaced every window it has vinyl siding. You have an addition on the back that didn't match the style of the rest of the house. You have a metal roof. I think the only thing that's really, you know, sort of there from when the house was built is the driveway. Yeah. <laughs> and even that has an addition to it as well. <laughs> so <laughs> um, while there are a lot of great houses in that neighborhood, theirs does not contribute to it. Yeah, and that's also that's also why we do district nominations is because you know even if that house in particular doesn't convey significance, it's still part of the neighborhood, right? And and so it still helps tell it still helps tell the story. So, um, but yeah, we do distinguish between you know contribute you know those you know within a district we we do categorize okay these are the properties that contribute to a, the district's significance and then these other ones that 
that that don't um and kind of it's similar to you know we have you know we like to have like more than 50 percent of the property owners support uh, a district nomination we would like to see you know well more than 50 percent of the resources within a district contribute to the district significance um doesn't all you know sometimes it's, it's closer to 50 50 in some cases depending on the size of the district but um yeah, yeah we really like to see um you know the majority of resources in the district contribute to that district significance right right so i really only kind of have sort of one more question that ties into everything and um, some of this is because I have a cousin also in Indiana, and he is uh, paraplegic, you know, uses a wheelchair, and he is unable to go to the inside the post office of the town he lives in because it is a building that was built in the 30s. It's listed on the National Register, and the postmaster of that particular one always informs him because about once a year he gets irritated and he tries to get it going so they can put some ramps in. And he's always told his buildings that are listed on the National Register are exempt from the ADA. No. So that's my question. No. <laughs> are they exempt from the ADA? No. Um, I, I mean, well, so <laughs> if, if, if that, and yes, like if like he, he is incorrect in saying that, the building is exempt from the ADA because if there's any new work proposed to be done to that building, it will need to be in conformance with ADA. So it's only exempt in the fact that he doesn't want to do anything to the building. <laughs> right, right. And that's real. Uh, but that that's no. It it is true. Accessibility was not in mind when historic. You know, a lot of these historic buildings were made. What's fascinating is now we're starting to see buildings that were designed like under the principles of, of universal design becoming eligible because that was part of the right the mid-century modern modern movement architecture in the, in the mid-20th century um and actually i have a case before i arrived at oklahoma shippo where we listed a building in missouri um, it was a historic auditorium built in 1921 it was built it was it was built kind of in to commemorate soldiers who had lost their lives in world war one and historically the the it was a it was built to basically resemble a greek temple so it has like the colonnade along the front and um and there was a grand staircase that led down to the street and then in the mid-70s um yeah it was of course like many Many towns and cities undergoing urban renewal. They 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 had this old building. The building didn't have an elevator in it. There was no types of accessibility of, of any of any kind. And one of the key things that they were facing is that this was where the American Legion met. And of course, the American Legion by the 1970s, most of those individuals needed access. They couldn't go upstairs, um, and so they needed to think of a way to 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 promote accessibility into the building or demolish it. And they, the town was quite clear they didn't want to demolish it. So they replaced, they replaced the grand staircase with two ramps uh, to access the colonnade in the front of the building. And, and we, we listed the building um, with the ramps included. Um, and we extended the period of significance to account for 
the ramps because as we were doing the research, we could we could tell that accessibility was part of the plan right. when they were reva- when they were redesigning when they were renovating the building and and so it, it's listed it is listed in that condition you know i have you know when i was doing the presentations on it you know i had folks that you know aesthetically the ramps are not pleasing um but they are important right and and so um and the, the building in case you're interested it's memorial hall in joplin missouri you could google it and you could okay see what i mean um and the the, the but we listed it with with the ramps included and so as historic buildings, you know, that's kind of an early case of, of, a, of a building that people recognized as historic and then tried to, to update it to make it more accessible. And, and that's the case with, with any historic property that is undergoing any type of, um, type of, of work. Um, there are creative ways to enhance accessibility through ramps, through chairlifts, through elevators, and you know, kind of bring the bringing thing full back, bringing things full circle. Talking about how you work with architects, um, architects are very creative in how they can integrate those things into a pre-existing built space. Um, you know, maybe it's hiding the elevator access just slightly behind the grand staircase, where you otherwise, where you don't notice it. You want to notice it, and then once you're there, it's like it's always been there. Yeah, right. Um, and so, and and the Park Service has clear, clear guidance on how to make historic buildings accessible and adhere to ADA standards and guidelines. So it can happen. It yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if if anything, it just takes creativity, and that's something that kind of going back to preservation in general. I think that's something that you know, we're not, we're not anti-development, we're for creativity and looking for creative solutions. Um, and that's another way that we, we promote that is, you know, we just, it's not, it's not that you can't do it. It's, it's be, be creative in how you do it. So. I would probably say that most architects would probably welcome the challenge of how do I take add a ramp to this historic building or an elevator and make it look like it was always there. Most architects are probably going to be yeah, yeah, all for that challenge. And and then at the same time just because like if it's a hist- and you know for people who might be interested, you know, if if they if they have like a particular building in mind and maybe there was a ramp that was added on to, you know, that was added onto it in the 70s or the 80s, or maybe that, you know, there, there's an elevator installed in it, um, but it was a building originally built in the 20s or the 30s, um, that, you know, the addition of that ramp or that elevator doesn't necessarily dis- disqualify a building for its potential eligibility. Um, I mean, we just had buildings listed. We had a church building in Oklahoma City listed this past week, and you can see clear as day uh, a wheelchair ramp adjacent to the sanctuary. Right. It doesn't take away from the building's integrity. I mentioned it in a sentence that it's there, um, but it doesn't take away from the integrity. I had something that strangely enough, I hadn't thought about, but um, as somebody who's almost 50, hearing you talk about buildings that were built in the 20s and then in the 70s rolls around Uh they updated them but that but now they're old enough because it's been long enough in the 70s that it still qualifies that sort of irritates me as somebody that was born in the 70s yes 
I wasn't ready for that. And now I'm shook and I'm going to go need a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> that is not why I had you on this show. <laughs> You're old, Jack. You're old. Damn you. But I probably you watch more be. cartoons. Yeah, you do. Nothing wrong with that. Dang it. I could be listed. Yes, you might be. You might be eligible. So when you know when you leave, think about: Do you convey significance, and do you have integrity? I'm gonna say I do. I have integrity. You, you do have integrity. Uh, my wife thinks I'm significant. <laughs> <laughs> my kids do. The dogs probably do. Yep. Oh yeah. Especially around meal time. They're 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 too biased. They think we're great. So. Well, I guess on that incredibly sad, sad <laughs> note <laughs> that I'm old enough to count when they fixed, well, quote unquote, fixed things in the 70s. Sometimes I see things and I'm like, why did they think wood paneling was okay? That is something. Or or asbestos. I mean, come on. While we're at it. Like, why was as... Oh, that was a big thing. That, oh my God. And if you're going to do wood paneling, why not flip it the other way so then it looks like a log cabin? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying. But anyway, <laughs> I, All right. I appreciate you coming on. That was, it was very informative. My pleasure. So listening friends, if you see a building and it's something that's interesting, you live in a small town and you think it's interesting, the time to preserve the building is now. Not five years from now when a developer wants to put a big box store in there or a big chain restaurant. The time to do it is now. <laughs> At the very least, it'll be documented. And having it documented can be just as significant, even if it does eventually get torn down. There will at least be records of that building. So, Yeah, because I will say we have folks from all walks of life who use the the resources that we that we that we create whether it's the national register nominations or or just the basic documentation for even things that we don't think are eligible or no longer exist um we still have people who come in and use those files and or request that type of information um because again it, it going back to what we said earlier it helps tell us tells us who we are where we've been um, it, it helps ground us in place. Yeah, yeah. Um, sort of on that note, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, it has a lot of military housing that was built, you know, in the teens and the 20s and the 30s. And as somebody who is who grew up a military dependent, I have this odd fascination with military housing. Anytime I can get on a base and go and check out housing, I want to do it. I don't know why, other than I grew up on military bases and talking with other military brats. A lot of people have that same fascination with military housing. And so uh, back in October, when we got to do that, uh, we the office got to do a tour of Fort Sill. And I'm, I wanted to go just because it's kind of neat to go and see that. But I wanted to go specifically to see the housing that was on Fort Sill. And it's all see the housing. It's all sort of great. And then speaking of military bases, apparently, apparently me watching tons of movies at the movie theater on Tinker is not enough, according to the Park Service, to get that movie theater listed and prevent it from being torn down 
because they don't show movies on Tinker anymore. Ah. And that's uh, that's just a bummer. So, yeah, two things. The U.S. Army, I believe they have come out and said that they basically have the largest stock of historic housing in the nation. You know, so if you think about all the residential historic districts that are in Oklahoma City or in whatever, you know, whatever town, the army has more like, because, yeah, they've had to house a bunch of people. And, um, and so, two, they're not always the best stewards of those, those properties, those resources in terms of documentation and, and, and so forth. Um, you know, we're having conversations right now about, um, again, this will make you put, you know, put, feel old, but uh, housing that was built um, during the Vietnam War era. Um, so basically like 1960, I think they're defining it from 1959 to 1975 or something like that. Um, but they've, they've been assessing, um, you know, the U.S. Army is assessing how much of that housing stock is potentially eligible for the National Register. Um, and so that's just, they, yeah, they have a, a lot of historic properties. And, and Fort Sill is, you know, a lot of that housing is, especially the older housing, it's like, it's Spanish mission colonial revival style. It's very unique to that place. Um, it's not like the stock housing tracks that, that, that oh. come later. Oh yeah, for sure. It's very, yeah, it's very unique. The, the old housing on Fort Hood where I was stationed is, I mean, it just looks almost like a first grader designed it and built it. It is old. Yeah. Yep. It just looks like just sort of plain Jane. A lot of it is old quadplexes and. Yeah. And that, and yeah. And that's the case with the Vietnam era housing is, you know, when things they've been, they've been talking about so much of it had to be built, had to be built quickly and cheaply. Yeah. And so then, you know, with that, a lot of those houses that had issues, so they had to keep getting modified and new materials were added onto and all those types of things. So, you know, are those types of resources, can they still convey their, their significance as part of that historic period? And for the most part, they can't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so when we, when we do have those collections of unique army housing, like we have on Fort Sill, um, that is, yeah, that's one of our, I mean, of course, it's on a military base, so not everybody can go to it. Uh, but that is definitely one of our best kept secrets, I think, in terms of the amount of historic resources that are at Fort Sill. Yeah, yeah. And just while we're on the subject, it sounds silly, but on that tour, we went to a hangar that was for a uh, hot air balloon, a military hot air balloon. Yes. And it's kind of weird because essentially it's just a big giant metal barn but it was so cool <laughs> going in there and just the inside that was just it was just really neat and you're just sort of like okay this really isn't it's just a big giant metal barn but this is the coolest big giant metal barn in oklahoma and i think it's one of only three existing balloon hangers left in the nation i think if i remember right and yeah yeah maybe the only one that's still on an army installation um and it is listed in the national register it yeah you should be able to Google it, and it's just the Fort, just Google like Fort Sill balloon hanger, and it should come up. It's massive, and it is probably in my top five of of historic buildings in Oklahoma. Yeah, it's it's just so unique. Five as well. Of course, I've only been to four, so no, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I guess real quick though, before I let you go, 
I know this is going to be putting you on the spot. What's another listed property in the state of Oklahoma that you just think is sort of awesome if someone can drive by it at the very least to check it out, Google Earth it, whatever? What would be something that you think someone should check out? Hmm. Might have a couple. Okay, go for it. One, one would be um, Edward's store in southeast oklahoma near red oak and that is literally one that you can drive by and you can go visit okay um it's open to the pub it's open to the public it's a dog trot cabin um first built in 1850 and um you can still see um like the the axe marks from you know as the logs were getting hewn and and put into place yeah um and they're actually doing restoration work to it now um and some interpretation work because it was it was located along the Butterfield um, Overland Mail stage route. That's just a really unique, it's a really unique site. No, and another one, um, so that's, you know, that's 1850s. Um, another one would be Calvary Baptist Church in Oklahoma City. Martin Luther King spoke there. He was, um, he had actually went to Calvary, uh, that was, he had applied to become the pastor there. And the congregation thought he was too young. Um, and, and of course, King went on to do great things. Um, but he did come back and speak at, at Calvary Baptist Church. Um, it's a historically African American church, beautiful stained glass windows. Um, and it's, I think, and I, and I think of it because it's a, that's actually a case where, um, the church was rehabilitated into law offices, um, but the rehabilitation was done in a way that profoundly respected the historic integrity of the church. And so you can still, the, the pews are still there. It's still used for community events. You still walk into the sanctuary. It still has that historic feel, that historic openness. The stained glass windows were, were repaired. Um, so it's like, so that's kind of, I, I think of that because that's a good example of, of how we can take some of these buildings that, you know, may have, that may no longer have been used and how we can rehabilitate them to, um, to new uses. I have yet to be to, uh, first national yet, but I have, from what I hear that could very well be next on the list from, from what I've heard in terms of the work that has been achieved. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, I appreciate you coming out. Yeah. Taking time out of your uh, your Wednesday as we record this, your Wednesday evening. My pleasure. And I'm going to go ahead and end the show. As I always do, at least for this season, I've decided next year this person's going to change to someone else. But everyone knows that I... Uh, I fell at this frequently, but remember everybody, try to live your life in a way that would make Mr. Rogers proud. Bye. Thank you for listening to Musings of an ADD Mind. If you enjoyed this podcast, or even if you didn't, please hit the subscribe or follow button.